Hello and welcome to the Knowledge Yellow College podcast. This is your host, Patrick Butler. And today, I have a fascinating conversation to share with you. I just wrapped up with our guest, Mick West. Uh, I first heard Mick on the Joe Rogan Experience podcast a few years ago. He is a very interesting guy. He is a science writer, skeptical investigator, and a retired video game programmer. He's the creator of the websites Contrail Science and Metabunk, for which he investigates and debunks pseudoscientific claims such as chemtrails, UFOs, and conspiracy theories. Uh, he also has an amazing new book called Escaping the Rabbit Hole, uh, How to Debunk Conspiracy Theories Using Facts, Logic, and Respect. Uh, I had a great time talking to Mick. We, we talk about his method of exploring these different conspiracy theories, how he takes these apart, sort of the mental mindset of people that believe in these conspiracy theories, and uh, ultimately how to get someone to change their mind. So I really enjoyed this episode, and I'm sure you're going to as well. So please, without further delay, enjoy this conversation with Mick West. Hey, Mick, thank you for joining us. It's a real honor to have you on the show. Glad to be here, Patrick. Hey, so, you know, I, I first heard of you a couple of years back on the Joe Rogan Experience. And, you know, I love what you do with your work as far as uh, really diving into different conspiracy theories and not only debunking them or, or describing them in, in details and in ways that regular people like myself can understand, but I also like your approach using facts, logic, and respect. Can, mm. can I ask you how you came up with that, uh, that approach? Well, uh, I kind of originally just started with just facts and logic <laughs> uh, because I thought that you could just explain things to people and they would understand and then that would be it and we, they could move on. But I gradually got to recognize that uh, it really helps if you're polite to people. And to be really polite to people, you've got to kind of understand where they're coming from and kind of respect their position without agreeing with it. You don't have to uh, agree with people to respect them, but you can understand that they're coming from a position where they think they're doing the best thing and they think they understand things. Uh, and you know, even if you think that they're wrong, you, if you start from a respectful position, a respectful disagreement, it's much easier to move forward than one way you just tell them that you think they're silly or they think that the, sometimes people just say that, you know, you're crazy or you're a tinfoil hat wearer. So you know, start from respect, use facts and logic and you get results. I, I, that's, that's awesome. And, and I think like right now more than ever, you're seeing, uh, you know, with, with the internet, with Twitter and stuff, everyone's always branding people with labels and dismissing ideas right off the bat. Uh, what, what was there a certain instance or, or a certain moment or experience where you discovered that your approach was you know not only true by facts and logic but using respect to like actually change someone's mind like was there a certain like moment where that happened or experience with one individual 
I think it was a gradual thing, but there have been a lot of individuals who have, uh, you know, told me basically that, that the approach worked. Like they say that, you know, they, they listened to me because other people were just essentially being rude to them or not, not respecting them or, you know, so they wouldn't, they wouldn't get anywhere. So it does actually work. Uh, I kind of came to it over a long period of time. I started a, a blog a really long time ago called Morgellons Watch, uh, which was about the Morgellons disease, which is this condition that people think that they have where they think that there are fibers coming out of their skin. And I started um, a blog about you know, how fibers are everywhere. And if you look at your skin through a microscope, you'll find some fibers on it because lots of them. So I gave all these kind of logical explanations. But I found that a lot of the people who had Morgellons ended up thinking that I was calling them crazy, even though I really wasn't. And it, it was something I, I actually took pains to try not to do is try to say that they weren't crazy and that you know they have real physical symptoms uh but the fact that people were getting this idea and then just basically ignoring everything i said made me realize that uh, you really have to uh be more polite and so i kind of changed my approach when i started my next blog which was contrail science which is all about the science of contrails and the chemtrail conspiracy theory and I started doing a uh, politeness policy thing there where I, I, I forced everybody who commented to be very polite. And I just found that that worked a lot better. Uh, it was a much more friendly environment uh, than the Morgellons thing, which had kind of become almost like a, a toxic thing because the comment mm. section was very adversarial. And so just that transition from the Morgellons thing to the contrail thing and uh, using the politeness and seeing it work better is really kind of what you know, drove it home for me. Yeah, that, that's what I find so interesting about conspiracies and, and what you do, like debunking them. It's not like the facts are, are just like one side of the story. You know, the other mm-hmm. side or the one side of the coin, maybe the, the other side is really trying to push through psychologically to get someone to understand this stuff and not and to actually believe it and not just, you know, stick with their own biases. Yeah. Well, there's a couple of big problems. Uh, one is one is that people are very predisposed to believe uh, their conspiracies. If they've, they've already got into a conspiratorial mindset where they think the government is lying to them, it makes it very easy to trust people who also say the government is lying to them. Uh, and so, you know, you get these, this, this natural bias that draws them towards the conspiracy theories. And then there's the problem that a lot of the explanations aren't actually that simple. Uh, a lot of things when you actually look into them in detail are more complicated than they seem. Even things like, like contrails being condensation uh, behind, behind aircraft. It sounds simple. And if you just give that simple explanation, it's fine. But when you start digging into the actual science of it, it gets complicated in the conspiracy theories. They, they shift a little bit to kind of encompass this. And so they'll make a claim that's a little bit more specific, a little bit more scientific. Like they will say that, you know, contrails can't persist under certain circumstances. And then you have to actually start explaining the science and explaining science to people is a real challenge. Uh, and that's something that I've struggled with over the years is how to, how to explain fairly complex concepts to people who don't really understand, don't really have a basis for understanding those concepts. So you've got to figure out ways of showing them things rather than explaining the science behind them. It's a, it's amazing how with like the contrails, 
you know, you must get, you must have to get very scientifically specific to get someone to understand that. Whereas you take another instance like flat earth, Mm-hmm. there's there's a lot of like evidence you know that you could just experience on a daily basis how do you uh you know like or in your own experience like differentiating and trying to pick apart those conspiracies you ever feel like this is a little ridiculous like the way that i'm i have to show someone like this evidence or even when you yeah. have the evidence trying to get them to again like make that change in their mindset to actually believe you well yeah when we flat earth you you would think yeah, everybody assumes that it's very straightforward that you know we can see things that prove the earth is flat but if you actually ask like the man in the street you know, how do you know that the earth isn't flat they probably wouldn't be able to give you an answer so it's really not as as obvious as it seems like we we feel that it's obvious because mm-hmm. you know we have thousands of years of science behind us and we have pictures of the earth from space and uh, you know, all the scientists agree that the earth is, is not flat and all the books agree that the earth is not flat and everybody pretty much agrees the earth is not flat. So we think that it must be fairly obvious that the earth is not flat. But if you just go outside and look around you, uh, you know, if you live in Kansas, it looks flat. Uh, if you look at the ocean, the ocean looks flat. Uh, so you could easily imagine from where you're standing that the earth actually is flat. So if people start from this position where they don't know anything, they say, I don't trust these scientists. I don't trust the history books. I don't trust any of the books. I don't trust anything in the media. I've just got to go out by myself and figure out what the shape of the earth is. Then from that perspective, it's actually a little bit more complicated than it seems. And uh, when you actually try to prove the earth is flat, then you start kind of needing a little bit of like math and geometry and trigonometry and 3D spatial awareness and, uh, and you know the concepts that are a little hard to to build upon so it's actually if someone's willing to throw out all of history and science it's not an unreasonable position to think the earth is flat uh with 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 nothing else to go on other than your senses mm-hmm. that's interesting uh when, when it comes to like the like with your own i love the flat earth one because to me that one is like so uh you know like if you throw out all of history and science then yeah i guess you could believe it uh like what has been your method for convince let's take that man on the street like what would be your method on convincing him or showing him that you know the earth is in fact round well there's a few pretty simple experiments you can do but uh the best one you can do in my opinion is looking at distant mountains over the ocean uh now in los angeles there's off the coast of la there's an island called catalina island uh, which is it's very nice to the land because it has very very steep sides and it's about 40 miles out from uh, from from the uh, from say Santa Monica. And uh, so if you go down to the beach of Santa Monica and look at Catalina Island, and you compare it to what Catalina Island actually looks like from a, an actual from close up, you'll see that the bottom two thirds of the island are completely missing. And the only way that could work is if the ocean is curved and the island is down below. Uh, the, the curve of the ocean. Now, people talk about things like boats di- disappearing over the horizon, but the problem with that is that because boats are relatively small, they often get lost in the haze or the refraction and you get these mirages. If you use something huge like a, uh, a mountain, like Catalina, which is 2,000 feet high, uh, it's, it's pretty obvious when you look at it that the Earth must be curved for this thing to go behind the island. Then you've got to look at other things like the sun. You know, Why does the sun, what's actually going on with the sun? 
if the the sun doesn't change size from when it rises to to noon, which means that it's essentially the same distance away from you as it is you know on the horizon as it is uh, at noon, and we know that's the same no matter where you are on the world. So if the if the Earth was flat, there's no way for that to work, other than the sun being very very far away and the Earth being being a ball. So there are these things that you can show to people, but it's, it's a little hard sometimes to get them to understand them because if they're very motivated, uh, there was this woman I met at a flat earth conference a few weeks ago. This woman I talked to, uh, I, was, I was talking to her about this example of Catalina Island and saying the bottom two thirds is missing. And she said, well, isn't that just perspective? And you kind of you know, flabbergasted me a little bit. I've heard this type of thing before, but just you know, the way she said it so easily was like, oh, it's just perspective. But there's, there's no way in which that actually makes any sense. There's no way that perspective makes you know, a thousand feet of a mountain disappear behind the ocean. It just doesn't work like that. But then, how do you explain that to someone? It's actually, if you just start you know, waving your hands around, uh, like I'm doing right now, it's, it's hard to convey that to, to, to someone, that what's actually going on. How is the image being formed in your eye? How do cameras actually work? How, what do light paths mean? Uh, what what is perspective? What does perspective actually mean? So you start getting into these like concepts which should be very straightforward, but because they've rejected all of science and all of history and 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 pretty much math as well, it's actually very difficult to get things across to people uh, unless you can actually demonstrate the effect in some way. Yeah, you really need to show them, have them have that experience to be able yeah. to to believe it, right? Yeah. So you, the big thing with uh, you know perspective is that to understand how perspective works, you need to understand essentially how a camera works, because perspective is all about the world uh, being turned into a photograph. Essentially, it's mm -hmm. the same thing when you when you're looking out into the world. Yeah, you know, the light is coming in through the lens in your eye, and it projects a tiny little upside down image on the back of your eye, and the uh, the cells in the back of, the, of your eye are directly connected to your brain and your brain figures out it's an image. With a camera, it's, it's pretty much exactly the same thing. There's a lens in the front of the camera. Uh, the light comes in, it projects a little upside down image on the back of the camera where the film is or where the, where the camera sensor is now. Uh, and But <clears throat> that sounds very simple and straightforward. But how do you explain how that actually works with uh, something like Catalina? What's going on with this image of Catalina being formed in this camera, how does it work and what has perspective got to do with it? So it's, uh, it's a tricky thing to, to convey to people. If you don't understand, you don't have a very good sense of 3D spatial awareness and geometry and things like that. Yeah, most people just accept the fact that, you know, if you can, if you see something that it's an image that's the same as a camera image and that if you've got a line of sight to something, you can see it. But if you start doubting concepts like that, it gets very complicated. Have you, have you ever considered like the, like uh, the evolutionary motive for this sort of conspiracy minded, uh, these conspiracy minded individuals, like what benefit does this even, does it, does it have for people, uh, well, to doubt science and history and, and sort of what they can perceive and that sort of stuff. I suppose it's kind of about, uh, trusting, people and there's kind of an evolutionary uh, basis for that with uh, you know, the tribal units and family units like people 
trust people in their family more than they trust strangers. There's this sense of, you know, the other people, you don't trust them. And I think that can be something that is an evolutionary thing uh, because, you know, back in uh, prehistoric days, uh, tribal units would probably uh, not be that friendly with each other. They would steal each other's food or they might even like, you know, kill each other. Uh, so there's an evolutionary benefit to not trusting people who are not in your immediate circle. And that's like any evolutionary thing can become magnified in some people that they can express that particular uh, uh, phenotype, I guess. Uh, this, this expression of the genes in more than other people do. So they become more suspicious of other people. But I don't think it's necessarily something that's going to be, you know, a, a genetic trait. I think mm -hmm. it's probably something that everybody has to, uh, you know, more or less the same degree is that we have this capacity for distrusting people. It's just that uh, in some people, for some reason, they've gone down a rabbit hole. They've consumed a certain set of media that makes them believe that, uh, that, that all these people are not to be trusted. And so it, it's not really that they're born with this, uh, this gene for distrust. It's just that they're, the distrust uh, centers in their brain have been kind of firing a lot more than other people. And eventually it becomes a habit for them to distrust people. It, like you nailed it. And I, I think uh, what's so interesting about what you do is that you're able to walk that line between being on their side and getting them to mm -hmm. trust you and believe you and not being immediately grouped in with, the other guys or the experts or whoever that they're in denial about. Yeah. It's a tricky one because, uh, you know, obviously like a lot of people think that I'm a government shill because I, <laughs> uh, I don't, you know, I, I debunk various aspects of things like the nine 11 conspiracy theories or even chemtrails or, you mm -hmm. know, even if you debunk flat earth, people will still call you a, a government shill. So yeah, it's, uh, it's a challenge. And you know, the, the way I respond to that is just basically by being as honest as possible. Try never to mislead people. Uh, if you get caught in a lie at any point, then it's all bets are off. Mm -hmm. Not only with that person, but if it's something you've done online, if you start misleading people or, or you present things in a deceptive way somehow, that's going to you know, haunt you forever. And just, just from a, a simple moral basis, I think it's good not to lie to people. But even yeah. if it, there was some kind of practical benefit from uh, lying to people in the short term, I think the long-term uh, problems of, of lying greatly outweigh uh, the problems of uh, the benefits of it. So, yeah, I try to be as honest as possible. I try to be open with people and I explain who I am and what I, what I did, you know, why. Um, I used to be a video game programmer. I made like a bunch of money because I, I helped create the Tony Hawk video game. And so I, then I retired. And so now I don't need to have the government pay me to do what I'm doing. So uh, I, I, you know, I explain that to people and that hopefully removes the suspicion because they would say, you know, why are you spending so much time doing this? Well, yeah, I do it because I'm retired and this is my hobby. This is what I enjoy doing. Lots of people spend lots of time watching TV. You don't get suspicious that they're doing that and uh, they're not being paid to do it. Or they spend lots of time building model railways. So just because someone has the hobby that they spend a lot of time on, it doesn't mean the government is paying them to do it. You know, I like doing this. 
Well, did, have you always liked doing this? Was it something, or is this something that you decided, like, I'm going to just go full steam and trying to change people's minds? <laughs> well, I, I kind of grew into it, uh, but I always liked science. Uh, when I was young, I used to read a lot of books on science. And yeah, I started out reading science fiction and comics, uh, things like that. But you know, that kind of, I think, triggered a love for science itself and things like sports space exploration and you know, the usual kind of nerdy sci-fi type things that you know, young people are into. Uh, I watch science fiction things on TV, like science fiction films, and you, know, you like science. And so because I like science, it kind of rankles me a little bit when I see something that's unscientific. Uh, if you see some pseudoscience that's out there. So I, I would like to, if I see some pseudoscientific claim or some, some claim that's wrong or based on bad science, I like to uh, try to correct it. Just you know, explain to people what what the mistake was and what the reality is, and yeah, you know, it just seemed like a, a fun little thing to do. It's also something I think that because I'm a computer programmer, computer programmers spend uh, a significant portion of their time debugging rather than programming. You think you know they spend all their time just writing code, but really they they spend like you know. 20 minutes writing code and then they, they spend like you know, 30 minutes trying to figure out why it doesn't work. Sometimes you would uh, get a problem in your code that would take you several days to track down. You'd have a little bug like that would only crop up occasionally and you'd have to you know, get, you get into there and do lots of little tests and set things up and repeat things and try to figure out what was going on. And if you do that, like I did for like you know, 25 years or so, then it becomes a mental habit where you get this, uh, this mindset where you've got to drill down to the root cause of the problem and fix it properly. If you, if you just put patches over things, it's going to come back to haunt you. So I really want to, when I see something that's wrong, I want to figure out exactly why it's wrong, what's actually going on. Like if I see something like a UFO video that's got some kind of weird little glow on it or something, you can't just like hand wave some explanation about that. Like I want to really drill down and figure out what's going on. And so I will spend, you know, perhaps too much time actually working on things like that. I will build little little rigs, do little experiments, uh, you know, get my different cameras in different positions and pour over the video and then go back and do it again the next day. Uh, just because I want to figure out exactly what's happening. I think a lot of people, when they they do debunking of things, they, they kind of just lump for the jump for the first explanation that comes along. Uh, something that sounds reasonable, but you, if you put in the work and actually, you know, actually physically do something, it is two benefits from that. One, you you get to understand what's going on, and the other one is you get a demonstration that you can show to people. You can say this is this is what's actually happening. You can show them your little your little experiment that you did. So yeah, mm -hmm. I just kind of love doing that type of thing. That's really cool. I love how you take the uh, the programmer mindset and apply it towards, you know, conspiracy. Yeah. And that's like debugging human psychology because, uh, again, you're sort of, you're working against biases and preconceived notions and, and trust problems. And that's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of it is uh, not just biases, but things like optical illusions. Right? People mm -hmm. don't understand what they're seeing. So you've got to demonstrate, you know, what, what they're actually seeing. Like with, with the chemtrails thing, it's difficult for people to look up in the sky and see planes and figure out exactly where they are in the sky. So yeah, understanding how people make mistakes like that. Like I, I, I have some pilot training, so I'm kind of used to seeing 
planes in the sky and figuring out where they are and what's going on. I understand, you know, how high the various planes are. But most people have no real idea how high a plane is. They see a contrail at the horizon and it looks like it's vertical and they think that it's a rocket because it looks like it's going straight up when really it's just coming straight towards them. It's actually in perfectly level flight and it's going towards the horizon because it's getting further away and because of the curve of the earth. And people just, they just don't understand these things. And so I've got to figure out a way of demonstrating them, uh, these things to them and figure out how to communicate you know, what, I, what I know to them in a way that they will understand. So I, I know that you've probably, you know, you got tons of content on this, but I'm so curious myself just to ask you about the, uh, about the 9-11 one. Cause I think that's one that a lot of people, uh, are, I know some people personally, some friends that are so stuck mm-hmm. on it. It's like, I've tried everything I can to, to get them to change their mind with no success. And one of the things that I'm curious about with, you know, your approach is do you ever start diving into one of these conspiracies and, and start, you know, being like, you know, this, this might be a conspiracy. This might be a, you know, th- this, this could be a setup or whatever. Yeah, sure. I mean, it's quite possible. We know that there are uh, corrupt people in government and we know people do things for their own personal interests. And we know historically uh, the U S government has done things like, like false flag operations in other countries. Uh, and we know that uh, big business uh, has lots of corruption in it. And we know that there are close ties between big business and, and government. And the people who are in power are in some ways like under the thumb of the military industrial complex. So we know that there are all these, these forces in play and that there is historical precedence for uh, this type of thing. But uh, when you look at the actual events of 9-11, is there actually any evidence that it was some kind of inside job? Uh, and if it was an inside job, what kind of evidence would you expect? Like, for example, if, if you know, some of the more extreme conspiracy theorists, they will say that uh, no plane hit the Pentagon. They'll say the Pentagon was hit by a cruise missile rather than a plane. And if that was the case, you would expect there to be hundreds of eyewitnesses who saw a cruise missile hit the Pentagon. And instead, we have hundreds of eyewitnesses who saw a plane hit the Pentagon. So the evidence that we have available to us doesn't match the conspiracy. Uh, <clears throat> you got other conspiracies like saying that there are explosives within the World Trade Center itself. Like mm-hmm. People don't understand how a fire can bring down a tall steel building. Uh, like, you know, obviously, two planes hit two buildings. Both, both buildings caught fire. And after a while, uh, they collapsed. And the collapse looked very suspicious to a lot of people. And you know, it's understandable because these were huge buildings and their collapse was like nothing we'd ever seen before. Although it's funny because a lot of people will say, oh, it looked exactly like a controlled demolition. Wait, it didn't really. It didn't look like anything at all like a controlled demolition collapses of the, the two towers. Uh, and if there was a controlled demolition, you would expect certain things from that. You would expect there to be very, very loud bangs. If you ever, you've ever seen a controlled demolition, there are these very loud bangs. So they'll tell you, oh, they, they use this special type of silent explosive. And then you ask them, how does that actually work? And there's a bit of hand waving. And you know, if you look into the actual physics of it, you really can't do it with silent explosives in a way that they suggest, which is everything was synchronized. So every single floor was collapsed at the same rate. Uh, but 
everybody will hold out the possibility that there was some kind of technology that was used to do some kind of controlled demolition. But the bottom line is there really wasn't any evidence of it. Now, there are people claiming things, like they will claim that they found these red, red and gray chips uh, of unreacted thermite, which they said was used uh, to bring the buildings down. But these chips that they found that they claim are evidence, they look exactly like paint chips. I've actually got a, a wheelbarrow in my yard here, uh, which is painted red, and I hit it with a hammer a few times, and some chips came off it, little paint chips, and they looked exactly the same. They were red on one side and gray on the other side, and this is exactly the same as the things they found in the World Trade Center that everyone's claiming was uh, evidence of demolition. Other things like iron microspheres, they say that's evidence, but you look into that, there's loads of causes of iron microspheres. So if you just keep looking into the claims of evidence, and if you really do an honest look at them, and you don't just you know, ignore every other possibility or uh, use uh, some kind of simple dismissal, then there really isn't any good evidence for these, these more extreme conspiracies. And there's a lot of evidence against them because we don't see what we expect to see from explosives. Now then there's, there's, there's simpler um, conspiracies. Like you could say that the CIA helped fund the terrorists or it gave them special access to something or it let them into the country or, you know, it's so that then you're saying the, the collapse was okay. That was just happened as we saw it. But the CIA helped people. And then it gets a bit harder to check. Like, what is the evidence there? It's a bit harder and it gets a bit vaguer. And then you could say, yeah, maybe somebody funded the terrorists and it was like not it was Saudi Arabia or it was uh, somebody else. And it gets even vaguer. Very, very hard to prove. Uh, but you know, most 9-11 conspiracy theorists actually have the version. They, they believe that the, the towers were brought down by explosives. They'll point to Building 7. You know, it's this big thing like, you know, two planes uh, hit uh, two buildings and three buildings collapsed. Uh, but there are explanations for why Building 7 collapsed. Like Building 1, uh, the World Trade Center North Tower basically fell on top of Building uh, 7 fell against the south side of it, completely destroyed the south side of it. All the windows were broken, fire rushing out of every every floor on the south side. And they just don't, they generally don't show you that when they're trying to do a conspiracy theory. Yeah, you only see the video of like the front yeah. half just sort of going down. Yeah, the fires are actually, uh, yeah, another thing with the scale of the buildings, they're very, very large. So when you look at them from a distance, you see like there's only a few floors that are on fire. And it doesn't actually look like very much fire. And this, this is true in the, 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 tor the towers and the Building 7. But when you actually get up close, you see you've got an entire floor engulfed in flame. And that's actually very, very large in terms of the fire. It's actually you're talking about 15-foot high flames that are just like roaring because of the, the, the wind going through them. It's like a blast furnace uh, on, you know, all across the entire floor. So even though it, it looks like a small fire from a distance, it's actually, it's a huge fire kind of concentrated in, in one location. It's like putting a, a blowtorch up to a, like one part of the structure until mm. it collapses and then gravity does the rest. In regards to the, the, the Pentagon side of things, uh, you know, you mentioned the, the, like there were no witnesses of a missile. They, they saw a plane, but uh, you know, it's fairly well known that, you know, like eyewitness reports are, sort of unreliable like the, you can mm -hmm. sort of plant an image in someone's mind if you, you sort of give them an idea of what they might have saw then they may agree with it or not or whatever uh, yeah but you got to look at uh where the pentagon actually is uh if, if you go look in google maps 
um, look at where the Pentagon is. It's right next to a busy freeway. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just on the other side of the, the river from, from Washington, uh, the capital and everything. But it's surrounded by relatively nearby tall buildings, which hail, held thousands of people. And it's at a, an intersection of two freeways, uh, two highways. So, and it, it happened uh, during the morning commute, basically. Uh, people were going to work. So there would have been thousands of people who potentially would have seen what happened. And there were, uh, you know, at least you know, several hundred people who came forward and gave statements. And there were probably were hundreds more who, who saw what happened and it didn't, didn't give a statement because, you know, once you've gone past several hundred statements of a plane flew into a building, then what more do you need? Yeah. So they're remarkably consistent. You know, they, if you, if you look at them, you will find variations in it. And you will actually find some people who said that they thought it looked like a missile, the thing that hit the Pentagon. But if you, if you tally them up, uh, then you, you get something like 98% people describe exactly what the official story was, that it was you know, the American Airlines flight uh, 70, or 75, 175, I can't remember right now. Yeah, the, the plane that hit the Pentagon. Uh, and they, it's consistent with that. So uh, it's very, very compelling eyewitness testimony when you've got hundreds of people all saying the same thing. Sure, some of them are going to get it wrong, but on average, they're going to get it right. I get you. I get you. So if there's just one eyewitness, then obviously it's... it's Yeah, yeah single eyewitnesses. And the funny thing is with single eyewitnesses is this is what uh, uh, UFOs are based on. Hmm. Yeah, you know, all UFO reports pretty much are single eyewitnesses. It's very, very rare to get a, a report of a UFO where you've got uh, two people independently verifying something that is then unexplained. Uh, usually what will happen is you get uh, one person see something or you get two people who will see something and then they talk about it amongst themselves and they, uh, you know, they're, they're, uh, they're, their memories kind of merge together because they talk about what they, what they just saw. Or you get multiple people seeing a UFO sighting but then it'll get explained. Like, for example, there was uh, like a bunch of flares get dropped near a city and people say, oh, I saw all this, this row of lights in the sky. And then, yeah, sure, they all did, but it was just flares. But yes, eyewitness testimony is, uh, uh, is it's difficult to, uh, it's difficult to use. And when people do use it, <laughs> they, they, they tend to uh, give very, very over-exaggerated accounts of how well they remember things and they tend to get insulted if they if you challenge things especially in the ufo community there's lots of people who will talk about something they saw like 20 years ago and then you 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 suggest well maybe you just saw a plane and then they'll they'll get really angry at you i know what i saw i spent my life like looking into these things (laughs) yeah because you're you're not just talking you're not just trying to debunk that idea it's like it's become a part of their identity and so you're like striking their ego when when you tell them that maybe you just saw a plane yeah 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 absolutely and uh it's uh it's like there's there's an old joke uh which is that it's it's kind of what's worse like telling someone they're crazy or telling someone they have uh, no sense of humor uh, and a lot of people would like rather be called crazy than having no sense of humor. But it's the same type of thing with memory. If you tell someone that their memory is failing, in, in some ways that's worse than, than being a bit crazy. Because if your memory is failing, it's almost like your sense of self and identity uh, mm-hmm. it, 
is dissolving away. It's like saying you know, you've got Alzheimer's or something like that. But, you know, just being a bit wacky is fine, but your memory failing is, is a horrible insult to, to, to a lot of people, even though human memory is uh, not very good. I forget things all the time. Uh, I uh, don't remember people's names. I don't remember faces. I uh, uh, forget what I was doing yesterday. And uh, if you know, once uh, in my house, I sat in my house on the computer once, and uh, I heard a, a noise in the backyard. I went out there, and there was this guy there, and he was like some burglar from the next house over that was being chased out by the other owner. Uh, and I kind of ran after him, and then the police came like later, and they asked me to describe him. I couldn't, I couldn't picture him at all. Even though I've been staring at him in the face, and I was trying. Like, he had kind of uh, average, average hair, and you know, I, I had a vague sense of what was going on. But then you start trying to describe something because people are asking. You, know, you see something fly over in the sky, and you, you you try to put that into words. You say, "Oh, it's a big kind of I don't know, like a, a triangle or something," and then that becomes the memory. So you have to be very careful when you're trying to you know, describe your memories or when you're listening to someone else's memories because you're not, the mind, the, the, the mind isn't a recorder. It's not like a video camera in your mind where it records things. It kind of encodes things in your mind. And when you bring back a memory, you have to decode it and you have to recreate the memory and recreate the little video from the, the compressed version that's in your brain. And that's very easy to go wrong and it goes wrong all the time. Yeah. It's like once it goes in and you're trying to de- you know, bring it back out, it's going to be filled with your own biases and all your own, yeah. um, you know, if you're trying to describe a burglar, you'll probably just start describing like what your vision of what a burglar would look like. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And you see this all the time with uh, eyewitness accounts where people get convicted and sent to jail. Uh, sometimes it's someone who looks similar Sometimes it's people who look you know, pretty much completely different and they just pick them mm-hmm. out uh, because their memory has got, has got corrupted. Yeah, this happens happens a lot. But, yeah, with like I said, with Pentagon, uh, hundreds of people, like a couple of days after that type of thing, is like, see it into your brain. Even then, some of them get it wrong. Most of them are going to get it right there. And with the Pentagon, it's not just the eyewitnesses. If you look at the, the facade of the, the Pentagon, the front of the Pentagon where the plane hit, you can actually see all the places on the pillars where the wings hit those pillars. And you can see like various amounts of damage. And there's, there's lots of photographs and you can go through them. Uh, and you can see the angle the plane was at is tilted down, that the, the left wing is a bit lower than the right wing. You can see where uh, one of the engines clipped a wall that's just in front of the Pentagon. There was a little generator area that had a wall around it and one of the engines clipped it. There were these light poles that got knocked down None of that would be possible if it was a cruise missile. Mm-hmm. So then you've got to like build this ridiculous story about how uh, these light poles were hidden around the freeway. And then this cruise missile flew in and hit the Pentagon. And then these guys with trucks came in and they dragged the light poles out into the road. Then they went over and they uh, chiseled a few holes in the side of the Pentagon to match where the, where the, where the plane's uh, wings hit. And then they talked to everybody on the, around there to try to uh, implant a story in them. Say, hey, did you see that plane? It's just, you know, it's completely ridiculous. Mm-hmm. The idea that, you know, something like that could have been uh, faked with a cruise missile and then everybody thought it was a plane. Because the evidence is so overwhelming that it was a plane that once you actually look into it, there's no way 
um, there's no anything else. I, I love the level of detail that you go into with each one of these conspiracies, you know, how you're able to really cover all the major facts and dive into it deeply. Well, what's your method for doing that? You know, it seems like a pretty effective method for getting to know just about anything, breaking it down into its parts. Like, well, where do you start with these different conspiracies when you decide to take them on? Yeah. Well, I just look at um, individual claims of evidence rather than I don't set out to say debunk uh, chemtrails. I look at what, what are people claiming uh, is going on? So if someone says, makes a claim that, you know, say uh, contrails can't persist, then I'll look at that particular uh, claim and, you know, what, what are they basing that on? So, you know, that's a fairly broad claim, actually, when you look at it, that, then they might say that it takes certain conditions for a contrail to persist and these conditions don't exist in the atmosphere. And then you can look at that claim and then you can look at things like, you know, weather charts and whatever, or, you know, meteorological soundings, weather balloons, and what are the actual numbers that they're giving you are they correct uh so you, you do it in a fairly fine-grained way you don't set out to uh, build a case that uh, chemtrails are not real you just look at everything that they're bringing in terms of evidence one thing at a time and you say is this thing true and if it's not true then you explain that one thing to people you have to be careful to let them know that you're not actually saying that you know, this one thing being wrong means everything is wrong. You just say, this one thing is wrong. So you can, we should stop saying this is evidence. And you know, maybe, maybe something else might be wrong too. And, uh, and often what will happen is I'll explain something is wrong. But they will keep using it. The community will keep using it as evidence. Uh, like, for example, in the World Trade Center, there's a famous photograph of a, of a column. It's a little, uh, it's a big column, one of the core columns, and it's being cut at a, a sharp angle. It's, it looks like it's 45 degrees, but it's more like, more like 30, it's just perspective. And it's a very messy cut, all the edges are melted. And people say that this, this is evidence that uh, shaped charges were used to cut the columns in the World Trade Center, so it's evidence of controlled demolition. And this, this particular photo had been around for years. And you know, this is one small bit of the whole 9-11 conspiracy theory pantheon of evidence. But it, it kept coming up. You'd see it pretty much almost every day. You know, someone would post oh, this is all this evidence that they had. And so they'll post these pictures and one of them will be this, this column and say, look, this is obvious. This column proves it. And so I set out one day to try to track down where this column was. Uh, and which column was it and when was it cut? So I, I took the photograph and I carefully analyzed it, tried to figure out what was in the background and then eventually tracked down other photographs and found which column it was exactly. And eventually I got to the stage where I, uh, well, I built a little 3D model uh, showing where it was and what it looked like. And then I showed that there were photographs of that column uncut uh, after the collapse. And then photos of the same column actually cut like you know, a month later. So you know, I proved conclusively that it was uh, something that uh, was not evidence for demolition. And I published this on my, on my, my, my post, uh, my, my page. Uh, but people kept using it. People still kept referring to it. So a lot of the people who are conspiracy theorists, they don't bother reading debunking sites. So it took quite a while to actually get through to people that you know, this isn't actually evidence. 
And then some people started to know, and then they would start telling their friends, dude, don't mention the column. That's not evidence anymore. Uh, and eventually they would, they all get to know it. And then this one bit of evidence is, is removed. But because it's something that had been a claim for such a long time, when I debunked it and when people realized it had been debunked, I think, and I hope that it made them think, you know, this is something that I believe for the last 10 years was a piece of solid evidence for controlled demolition, but it's not. So they've been believing something that's, that's wrong for 10 years. And I think that gives people pause and then they start to look at other things that, you know, maybe I got that wrong. You know, the architects and engineers for 9-11 truth, they're supposed to be like architects and engineers. They got it wrong for 10 years. So maybe they got something else wrong too. So it's a good, it was worthwhile putting in all that work. It took me three days to find, find the column and prove that it was, wasn't cut, but it's something that pays off over time. Yeah, that's awesome. You're able to prove with at least one piece of conclusive evidence that mm-hmm. this one part of the argument's wrong. So it, with that revelation, it basically cast doubt on the rest of the conspiracy, or at least has the ability to, right? Yeah, totally. Yeah, and you can do that with a, a bunch of things, and eventually, the kind of the weight of these various things has an effect, uh, especially with a you know a theory where people are being. Uh, they think they're being scientific. It doesn't work so well with, with the flat earth where they, they don't really subscribe to science at all. But <laughs> things like the 9-11 conspiracy theorists, uh, you get people like the architects and engineers for 9-11 truth. And a lot of those are just very well-meaning people who just can't comprehend how the buildings could have collapsed. And uh, they, you know, a lot of them, are, they think they're fairly intelligent and they they understand the issues a lot of them you know one guy is like a high school physics teacher and he's put out lots of reasonable sounding work but you know you just have these core misconceptions that you have to get across so you know it is it is uh you know reasonable to use science with people like 9-11 conspiracy theorists not not so much with what it's interesting how how many people you know they they always always have seem to have good intentions when they're you know, talking about these conspiracies rare that someone has, you know, is like malicious about or intentionally trying to spread disinformation or have you, you know, experienced that? Yeah, definitely. I think uh, most of the people I've met in the various conspiracy communities are very nice. And the more extreme the conspiracy is, uh, the nicer the people are, it seems. Uh, I went to the flat earth conference. It's, It's a very small flat earth conference. I went to uh, about three, three or four weeks ago. Uh, yeah, and the people there were lovely. They were very nice people. Yeah, obviously you're going to get some people. Now. Yeah, there's, there's more extreme conspiracy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, the the worst people are the UFO people. I get so much more grief from the UFO people than I do uh, the Planet Earth people and the 9/11 people and the Chemtrail people. It's kind of weird. It's, uh, I don't really know why that is. I think, I think perhaps uh, the, the flat earth people and the more extreme people, because their uh, beliefs are so extreme, they expect people not to believe them. But the more reasonable sounding the claims are, the more people expect you to believe them when, you, when they explain it to you. And so they get very angry if, they explain it to you and then you don't believe them. It's like you're calling them stupid. Uh, whereas you know, it's expected in the flat earth, but it's so if someone's a UFO person, 
and then they explained to me that, uh, that they saw a UFO when they were when they were 19, uh, 43 years ago, and they've done lots of research since, and they believe that UFOs are real. And if I don't then immediately agree that UFOs are real, then they 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 get angry with me uh, because they 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 expect uh, to be believed, but. Uh, I, a lot of the times they don't really have a better case for uh, their their position than, than the flat earth people or the 9-11 people or the chemtrail people. Yeah, obviously, the, the plausibility of what they're saying uh, is more reasonable, maybe not with the UFOs, but certainly with things like some of the, uh, even the chemtrail conspiracy theory is plausible that someone could be spraying stuff out of the back of a plane. That's a perfectly plausible thing to do. Uh, perhaps not to actually, you know, for the reasons that they're saying, but uh, uh, it, it's just, okay, I forgot where I'm going with that. <laughs> they, the, yeah, the more, the more extreme it is, I think like, the easier it is for them to kind of roll with the punches. Whereas, mm-hmm. yeah, not, not, not the case with, uh, with UFO people. That, that's a really interesting observation. I'm going to call it West's law from now on. The more extreme the conspiracy, the nicer the people are. Yeah. See, see if it yeah, holds it's true. Definitely <laughs> been my, my experience so far. Well, There's different demographics, though. Uh, the 9-11 people, uh, there's a lot of old men in the 9-11 uh, truth community, uh, if you're in the architects and engineers for 9-11 truth especially. Yeah, obviously, there's lots of young people as well. Uh, college kids are very into conspiracy theory young people are very into conspiracy theory just because they've got more uh, more open minds so they're very so easier for them to get uh you know, kind of sucked into various things uh so you get some demographic shifts but uh, i guess the ufo people are also a lot of old men as well the old men do tend to be a bit grumpier than the young people uh, yeah. but then sometimes people are a lot more passionate and they, they get a lot angrier uh but you know, it varies have you ever seen any data about like more about the demographics of people that believe in various conspiracies? Cause that would be really interesting to me to know, yeah. like what's their income level, what's their education level? What, what, what are, how do the, some of those things relate to which well, it, you might believe? There's in? a definite, uh, there's a definite bulge in age, uh, where younger people are much more likely to believe in conspiracy theories. So, you know, 16 to 25 is a lot more uh, conspiratorial than 75 plus, and it's a fairly even uh, curve down there. It just kind of drops off the older people get. And it's education, like the less education people have, the less likely they are to believe in conspiracy theories. But it doesn't mean that if you have lots of education, you're immune to believing in conspiracy theories. You can, you can find people with PhDs in all kinds of subjects who believe in all kinds of conspiracy theories. Even, you know, there's, uh, there's people with PhDs in climate science who believe that the earth uh, is, global warming is man-made and there's people with PhDs in climate science who believe that it's not. So, you know, one of those essentially is a conspiracy theorist. Uh, so yeah, it's not, it doesn't, it doesn't immunize you against it. The, Male-female divide is interesting. Uh, I think things like 9-11 conspiracy theories, if you look at architects and engineers for 9-11 truth, very, very male-dominated, obviously. It's a bunch of old men. But I think that's probably because that's just because architects and engineers tend to be, be male 
and they tend to be retired people who have more time on their hands to, to uh, join organizations like that. So I think yeah, young professional uh, female engineers, uh, I would be very surprised if you found one a young professional female engineer who believed that 9-11 was uh, controlled demolition. It would be a very strange beast. It's mostly going to be old male engineers. So yeah, they're definitely demographics. I think there's demographics like within race as well. African-Americans uh, believe certain conspiracies more than, than uh, you know, white Americans. And partly of that is a kind of a historical thing because uh, obviously black people have been oppressed for a very long time. And there were instances in the past where uh, black people were used as medical subjects without their consent. There was a famous thing called the Tuskegee syphilis experiment where uh, black men were infected with syphilis just to study it. And I don't think they, they told them that they were, they were getting this. They told them that you know, they, they paid them like $5 or something and told them that they were getting this test drug or something, but they were actually infecting them with syphilis and then they infected their wives and it was it was a pretty terrible thing. So that's something that lives on within a community and creates a distrust of government. Uh, and so you get certain types of conspiracies, I believe, more in the African American uh, culture than others. Uh, but uh, it's not really something I've looked at in detail with other conspiracies. But there's definitely you know a stronger distrust of government between from African Americans than there are from from white people, more mm -hmm. or less. That's interesting. I wonder about if it's a generational thing as well. Like, uh, like for my generation, maybe seeing, you know, like so much about 9-11 conspiracies, especially with the internet, you know, you're seeing more conspiracies than probably people ever before ever had the opportunity to sort of explore. Like with UFO stuff, it was probably a pretty small community yeah. uh, with not much resources or media to view. And now, like an entire generation of, of younger people are exploring all these conspiracies and maybe even of, you know, sort of living through 9-11, having a more of a distrust towards government, maybe that amplifies how much, how many other conspiracies they believe in compared to maybe like the generation that fought in World War II. Maybe they weren't as conspiracy inclined. Yeah, yeah, that, that definitely could be something to do with it. But uh, I think you see the age difference in people uh, after 9/11 as well, it's not just this, you know, pre 9/11 and after 9/11. It's it's still you still get that curve where conspiratorialness drops off as people get older. Uh, so people are definitely becoming less conspiratorial as they get older. It's not simply a generational thing at this point in time. It's something that actually happens over time. And I think it is just uh, uh, people get more perspective of the world. You know, something I talk about a lot in, in my book is that uh, people are missing information. People are forming their beliefs based on a limited set of information that they have and an unlimited number of sources of information that they have. Like if you spend all your time on YouTube watching a uh, certain type of information, then you are going to be believing what information is telling you. If it's all about 9-11 conspiracy theories, you start believing 9-11 conspiracy theories. But over time, as people get older, it's almost impossible for them not to get additional information sources on top of that. So it's kind of a natural thing that you know, young people, they glom onto one thing and they start consuming that one thing. 
but eventually you discover something else and you, you broaden your horizons and you get a, a broader view of the world and you understand how the world works better. Uh, and you, uh, you, because you've gained this perspective, it actually lets you understand uh, you know, the, the plausibility of things like conspiracy theories. Or you'll just learn something new, like some, some new fact that you are missing. Like you might learn that, uh, um, like in the book, I give the example of a guy who thought that barrels on planes was uh, evidence of chem chemical spraying because he couldn't think of any reason why there would be barrels on planes. And then years later, he found out that the barrels on the planes that he was seeing, these photos of barrels on planes, were ballast barrels, which they used during the testing uh, phase of the aircraft to uh, move weight around. So he learned something new. And this is something that everybody is constantly learning stuff, whether they like it or not. If they you know, spend a lot of time down one rabbit hole, they're eventually going to get exposed to other things. So older people will naturally start falling away from conspiracy theories as they get older. So it, it's, so it's really like a data problem. It's like a bandwidth issue. People can't do what you do. They can't drill into these uh, conspiracies and get enough data that they need to be able to either confirm or deny what they, yeah. their beliefs. Yeah, it's it's not that they can't do it. It's it's more that they they don't do it. Mm -hmm. uh, they yeah they they get into habits of watching certain videos because they enjoy them. And then they just continue watching them. I mean, they're perfectly capable, usually, of, of understanding things. Uh, so you know, part of the challenge of debunking is is getting the information to people. Like, if I just write a debunk or make a video and stick it up, uh, it doesn't mean that anyone's going to look at it. I, something I, I do is then I, I will go into Facebook groups, uh, like 9-11 Facebook groups or Flat Earth Facebook groups or UFO Facebook groups and I will post my explanations on those groups so people will see them. You've actually got to push the information to them. It's tricky though because if you go on these groups and they think that you're some kind of government shill or some yeah. kind of naysayer or some kind of, uh, know, some kind of arrogant skeptic, then you might get ignored or you might get blocked or, or banned. So you have to be kind of careful with what you do. I've got banned from quite a few groups. So I've learned to be, you know, kind of drip it in rather than just dump it all at once. Are, are you keeping a tally of how many times you've been called a government shill? <laughs> no, I've this, uh, it's quite a few though. <laughs> once a day, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, well, Mick, man, I, I really appreciate the work that you do because I, I, I think it's, I think we're in an interesting time now, you know, with so much information going out there. Uh, I, I'm always curious to see sort of where people's beliefs stem from and, and how these beliefs get formed and solidified. And, and I think what you're doing is actually really important as far as not only debunking these things and to going into the detail, using your programmer mindset to, to take these things apart and, and, you know, explain the, the facts, but also doing it again with, with respect. I think that's really the, the thing that the internet needs more than ever right now. So love what you do, man. And, and for everyone listening, Go buy Mick's book, Escaping the Rabbit Hole, How to Debunk Conspiracy Theories Using Facts, Logic, and Respect. And Mick, where, where can they find you on the internet? Uh, they can find me. My, my main site is uh, Metabunk, metabunk.org. I also have a, a podcast, Tales from the Rabbit Hole, which you can find at uh, tftrh.com. Uh, 
and oh, you can just go to mickwest.com. Everything's listed there. You can get to everything from there. I'm on Twitter and I'm on Facebook and I'm on YouTube. So I'm everywhere. Yeah, you got to push it out, right? Yeah, I've got to. <laughs> Fantastic. And before we wrap up, last thing, you got any final asks or requests or any, any words of advice or wisdom for the audience? Uh, just keep an open mind. I think a lot of people they, uh, who get into conspiracy theories think that because they're into conspiracies, they're keeping an open mind. But don't keep your mind open in one direction. Have your mind open in all directions. We need that advice more than ever right now. So <laughs> thanks, Vic. And thanks for your time Thank today. You. It's been awesome. It's been great. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed that episode, please hit the subscribe button and follow us on Instagram and Twitter. You can find us on Twitter at KWC pod on Instagram at knowledge without college podcast. You can find me Patrick Butler at Patrick Butler zero zero on Instagram and Twitter. I encourage you to send over any feedback you have. If there's any guests you'd like to hear on the show, any topics you'd want to hear discussed. I want to know about it. I want to hear your feedback and opinions. So please help me make this a better experience for you. And I look forward to hearing from you. Have an excellent day and thanks for listening.